0: to soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway and Sons and at listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is the classical pianist Mark Andre Hamlin, known for his consummate musicianship and brilliant technique in the great works of the established repertoire as well as for his intrepid exploration of the rarities of the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries in concert and on disc. Hamlin spoke to me a day before his recital at Carnegie Hall, performed, of course, on Carnegie's Steinway Concert Grand, Model D. You're born in Montreal, mm-hmm. but you don't sound very francophone.
1: Well, I've been in the States for 38 years, which is like two-thirds of my life, <laughs> so that's... Basically, the answer.
0: But do you have that lovely Montreal French? Do you say "franchement"
1: instead of "franchement"? Franchement. Oh yeah. Oh okay. yes. Right. Oh yes. Right. You know, it's it's funny when I go to countries, uh, francophone countries, which are not uh, Quebec. Mm-hmm. I tend to be a little bit of a chameleon and change my accent a little bit to uh, to sound more international, because above all, I want to be understood. Because if I really spoke the way I spoke at home, it would be understood as gibberish, basically. Uh-huh.
0: Uh, Montreal is a great place for an intermediate French speaker like myself because you can switch to English whenever you get stuck and people will roll, roll with you. For
1: most people. Uh-huh. I mean, a, a lot of people, uh, unfortunately, resist sure. uh, learning English, and that's a shame because mm. it's it's there. It's the most international language, and they should at least have some notion of it.
0: But that's part of the Quebec... Uh, Spirit right yeah. keep, keep it French you have made a conscious effort, I think to bring to our attention composers who have been in the dark or who are more traditionally unsung mm-hmm. Now I understand that your father was an amateur pianist yes and he would show you scores, perhaps dusty uh, unknown scores. I guess I'm asking, did it start with your father, or how did you gravitate toward
1: bringing people to light? It's partly true, only because it's a little bit of a misconception, because I think he was discovering most of these things along with me. Uh-huh.
0: So, but how did you decide, instead of playing the Ravel concerto 20 times a year, mm-hmm. which some folks at your level do, I want I want to bring these composers uh, to the forefront and how did you pick them
1: well i think that uh you're you're saying you know i've I've done this consciously you know to bring these composers to the forefront I, i think i think that's more true now but at the beginning i was attracted to these things simply because they were off the beaten path i basically did what i liked which I wouldn't recommend to anybody starting a career. I, I, I did it quite wrong. Mm. But I was lucky enough to find record companies, especially Hyperion later, of course. Uh, who were completely willing to go that path. I think I built people's trust mostly by, uh, through my recordings and not my, uh, not my actual concerts. Uh, my concert schedule really took a long time to fill up i mean i was never touted as a prodigy year or anything like that it, it just it just uh, took a long time having recorded almost only these composers that nobody knew about, you know, uh, promoters were not going to take a chance on me. You know? mm-hmm. The few that did, I mean, bless their heart. I mean, they, uh, they were re- rewarded, I hope. Mm-hmm. But, uh, at the beginning it was very, very tough.
0: So your recordings actually built the concert following.
1: That's, that's the way fair. I see it yeah. anyway. I mean, as somebody who's followed my career uh, uh, from more of a distance might give you a different answer, but that's how I see it. <laughs> you are very close to your career.
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, at the same time, if a pianist today sits down to record the Moonlight Sonata, mm-hmm. he better have something unusual and interesting to say.
1: Not necessarily. No?
0: Okay, tell me Tell me why.
1: Because there's nothing wrong with the actual truth. Okay. You know, Glenn Gould you, was quoted as saying, the only reason, the only excuse for recording is to do it differently. Mm. To me, that's a very, very, very poor reason because it attracts the attention towards the performer. Mm -hmm. And that's what I don't want. Uh, I I, I don't go on stage to show myself. I give concerts for the sole purpose of sharing. Mm -hmm. I like to share. I like to share discoveries. Without being completely uh, strangled by uh, or text additions or whatever. I like to be as authentic as possible without going overboard. Of course, I feel that there's quite a few musicians who are just performing and interpreting eccentrically just for the sake of it. And I think it's Mm -hmm. difficult enough to try to play the music as written.
0: So it seems that you're intended, right? You're of the school of my job is to illuminate the word
1: of the composer. I think, I think uh, any musician should be a channeler.
0: Okay. Yeah. And, you try to not only not insert yourself, but it sounds like to remove yourself from that.
1: Well, I can't sh- do that completely because okay. because <laughs> I'm going to be my personality is going to be there anyway in some way. I mean I can't I can't avoid it, you okay. know but I, I, I still intended to realize the intention of the creator, you know who composed this work that I'm performing as much as possible. Mm-hmm. as purely as possible
0: does your approach to each work that you're interpreting does it stay the same regardless of the composer or do you have a different strategy depending on what you're playing if you're playing Liszt or you're playing Skriabin, are are the priorities for each of those composers and works the same or does the work itself dictate what becomes more important, less important? and
1: Well, the language in both cases is, of course, very different. But uh, they were both composers, they were both creators, I mean, they had in common, of course, you know, the task of translating their ideas into musical notation in concrete form or as concrete a form as possible. And uh, that is what I try to penetrate as much as possible. I, mean, I write music myself mm-hmm. and without ever being s- so bold as to put myself in their, uh, on their level... At least I know a little bit how they felt at the moment of creation. And that's uh, that's one of the things that I really, really try to do. And it especially helps in the case of uh, the big war horses and uh, very, very well-known works. The best example I'd, I could give is uh, many years ago, I, I was asked to learn the Tchaikovsky B-flat minor concerto, which, of course, everybody knows every note of. Uh, and I thought, um, how am I going to do this and still make it sound fresh, you know. And I tried to put myself in the mind of Tchaikovsky, coming up with these uh, these melodies, you know, and uh, it really helped me. It really, really helped me. Uh, imagining yourself as much as possible in the mind of the creator.
0: That is to say, okay, what motivated me to to write this or, or, or where, where does this material come from and yeah. how does
1: it relate? And how was it put together, mm-hmm. which which is uh, very, you know, it's very instructive to be a composer because you realize very early on that it, it's very likely that, well, very few musical works were ever put together. The various components in the right in the right order in the actual order. You can think of the ending first. You can think of maybe the middle first, and then you know work your way on both sides. I've I've put pieces together like like a jigsaw puzzle practically, Hmm. and the trick is not to make it sound like that.
0: And that's not a unique strat. I mean, I know Stravinsky famously worked that way, putting up bits. Uh, on the wall of his pieces and then literally assembling them as you've described. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a bit about your composing since we we brought it up. You have the the etudes in all twelve minor keys, right? right, Mm -hmm. Tell me about that piece. Why did you say, okay this is something I want to do?
1: Well this is a, a project that was started when I was a young student really. The first piece to be completed was a rather large prelude and fugue, and it was the it became the last piece of the set. I remember notating the coming up with the fugue subject in 1984. Okay. And I finished the whole set in 2009. So we're talking 25 years.
0: This is germinated for a quarter century.
1: Yeah. And at the beginning I had no idea whether i 'd be able to complete the set, you know mm-hmm. I, I was just really feeling my way into the, into this kind of world. Mm-hmm. My primary inspiration was the the etude sets of Alkan and Godofsky, you know, uh, which I was just uh, consumed with at the time. Mm-hmm. But the whole set, I think, eventually, I hope, acquired a personality of its own. Uh, as far which as which is la-
0: to say, your own language.
1: I hope so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, whatever that is. <laughs> <laughs> that again is uh, is more for other people to okay. describe. You know, uh, but
0: I- you weren't sitting down saying, "Let me write a pastiche of so and so's style here."
1: Not consciously. A- a- with the exception, perhaps, of the Etude number no. 6, which uh, lampoons the typical sort of 3-8-D minor Scarlatti sonata. As far as the language, it's basically tonal. I've most often written very tonally-based things, but uh, the chromaticism and the cross-relations are abundant.
0: Are you drawn most to tonal works as a performer?
1: It's not a question of language. If the music is genuine enough, it doesn't matter what the language is. I'd uh, I'd rather concentrate on what is actually being expressed. That's probably the correct answer. And, you know, from very <laughs> early on, I, as soon as I had a little pocket money, I mean, I, I started... Spending that on bargain, whatever bargain records I could find, and it was always like things like Stockhausen and Xenakis and whatever. I had the good fortune of being exposed to the much of the standard repertoire rather early because of my dad. Not only because of what he was playing, but also the the, the records he was playing around the house. Uh, Some of my earliest impressions, for example, are uh, Tchaikovsky's ballet music, which I still love. But because I I became familiar with these things early, I just wanted something else. I mean, Uh I I wanted to go play in the sandbox instead of doing my homework. And uh, I, I sort of did that whole thing sub rosa because uh, my teachers would not really have approved of it i mean I, at age 13 i discovered the ives concord sonata and i was never the same after that i bought the uh
0: it's one of your earliest recordings as well
1: yes but that, even, but yeah? but it was much much it came okay. much later 89 actually. Okay.
0: Is understanding the standard repertoire essential before diving into thornier language of Adams and Xenakis and, and it's, Friends?
1: It's essential to understand it, but I'm not sure that it's essential before, because uh, there's nothing wrong, I think, with uh, studying both of these things or being interested in them concurrently. Mm-hmm. Who knows? I mean, if you do that, you might even be more able to find parallels. and. Uh, uh, one can certainly help each other. I think.
0: What are some unexpected discoveries as far as works or composers that you've had such a, a long journey over so much rep?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What are some of the, some some that have really stuck with you that have surprised you along the way?
1: well right now uh what's really consuming me uh, is i'm preparing a recording of uh, samuel feinberg's first six piano sonatas there's 12 total uh, i've been working on them for the last maybe three years or so uh, or more and i've had most of the scores forever but never really paid that much attention because it's it's really hard music to penetrate because the harmonic language is unlike anything you've ever seen mm. even though it's tonally based there's a abundant amount of chromaticism and it borders atonality very often. But once you've taken the trouble, it definitely is a fascinating world to explore. And uh, I'm hoping that this recording will open a few ears to that music.
0: Are there composers you find yourself returning to again and again? I know in my journey as a very middling pianist, your relationship with composers changes as you grow oh, sure. musically and chronologically. Are there composers that you find you have maybe a renewed appreciation for, or a desire to
1: return to? Not return to necessarily. I mean, I've discovered a lot of things along the way that I didn't think I'd like. Uh, as a matter of fact, the prime example in this case is Debussy, ah. which for a number of years, the most of my life, I absolutely hated. Mm.
0: What was your aversion to Debussy initially?
1: Well, I, I didn't appreciate the fact that one heard it all the time. I mean, whatever graduation recitals there were, you know, if you had to pick a modern piece, well, Debussy was the fallback. And I felt also that I always heard student performances, which, which really didn't come up to the level of the, of the piece. So for a long time, I just wasn't interested. And then I, I frankly don't know what turned me around. I couldn't tell you. But once I started exploring Debussy's piano music, I realized what a fool I'd been and what a mistake I'd made. Because it, it is uh, such a perfect marriage of perfect... Pianistic and uh, musical science knowing and sensuality. Uh, he had it all. He really had it all. It's, it's not always pianistically so pleasant, but it's certainly worth uh, delving into because uh, there's really nothing like it. I mean, there's things in there you don't even find in Ravel, for example. Ravel has its own rewards, obviously, as you know.
0: And the way Debussy uh, sort of gave up on repeats... As he moved forward, mm-hmm. that's, it's, it still sounds avant-garde.
1: Yeah. If you look at the preludes, he very rarely develops anything it, it, I and mean, he presents ideas, <laughs> you know, maybe a couple of times and, uh, and not really any exploitation of the material.
0: also i think have a special relationship and fondness for haydn who uh, (laughs) i I think in the piano literature can be oddly overlooked because there's there's so much there's a thinking of this can't be so great and we have beethoven so why don't i just
1: you know well anybody who says that and of course you know i i I would never dispute people's love of beethoven but (laughs) but at least take a look at haydn and see how richly rewarding the music is you no know, i i had learned a few sonatas when i was a student but when i really took these uh, these volumes and started reading through them it it was like unwrapping one fabulous christmas package after another mm. because he gives you these little surprises uh i mean he was really a powerhouse mind and and a jokester at the same time you know and he loves to surprise you he loves to be angular and there's uh, such endless variety in the language you know how can you not be fascinated i did meet one of my eminent very eminent colleagues who told me that he is more of a beethoven specialist he said i don't get haydn he said i don't i don't get the humor which is fair enough of course sure. but um but give it a shot <laughs> <laughs> i certainly did and it was uh, uh, i've never looked back it's fascinating
0: One more, I've heard your way into Liszt, which I also appreciate. I think Mm -hmm. sometimes we think of Liszt as this showman and these trills and these arpeggios, but I I really like the quiet list, the contemplative list. I think you've done a great job of drawing him out.
1: Thank you. Well, ask yourself, why do people never, ever, ever, ever say the same thing about someone like Paganini? Hmm. Have you ever heard a bad word about Paganini? No, it's true. And who, honestly is the greater musician despite you know paganini's charms and, yeah. and melodic invention fine but list was the true creator the innovator mm-hmm. the originality is staggering He was one of the ones with Wagner who paved the way for the entire 20th century, it seems to me. But Paganini is never a spoken ill of. It's curious. Yeah. <laughs> um, but violinistic virtuosity, I think, is more. Forgivable. Forgivable and inherent to the instrument. Uh
0: huh. Because we expect it. Have we been trained? Had did Vivaldi train us to just expect that fire coming off the violin? <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, thank you, thank you for talking to me today.
0: That's it. Uh, yeah. Is it, unless there's other things you want to uh, you want to discuss.
1: Uh, I don't I know. We, we covered, you covered a lot. I mean, you were very were very well informed.
0: Thank you. I try to be. I really? try to be. Really? Yeah, I
1: try to do my homework.
0: You've been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard clips from Marc-Andre Hamlin performing his own etudes, namely Numbers 12 and 6, the Concord Sonata by Charles Ives, Berceuse Opus 19a by Samuel Feinberg, Canup from the second book of Debussy's Preludes, the Allegro of Haydn's Piano Sonata in D Major, Hoboken 1637, and Liszt's Apparition Number no. 1. All recordings on the Hyperion label. Visit steinway.com soundboard to learn more. Our intro and outro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan. Questions for the podcast can be sent to info at steinway.com with the subject heading Soundboard. Thank you for listening.